This is a Thinkers 50 podcast, brought to you in partnership with the Brightline Initiative, bridging the gap between strategy design and delivery. This is Stuart Craner, and this is a Thinkers 50 podcast. I'm talking with Andrew Kakabadze, co-author of The, the Five Qs. And the five Qs, IQ, EQ, PQ, RQ and MQ. So IQ and EQ are kind of un- understood widely. Uh, PQ, political, RQ, resilience, MQ, morality now talk talk more about the the morality of bribery i mean it, it seems from a from a western point of view we we would regard bribery as a bad thing and we would apply our mq our morality judgment and therefore not not bribe what you're saying is that in the harsh world of global business well, it's not the harsh world it's the real world of, of global business that bribery is commonplace and actually companies and executives go along with it. So they put their morality on hold or suspend it. Talk us, talk us through how that works then, Andrew. Um, these findings took me some time to come to terms with. But what I was seeing, I wasn't seeing crooked people undertaking crooked activities. I was seeing normal, healthy, uh, deeply conscious, people with morals undertaking activities that they did not wish to undertake. So if we take bribery as an example, uh, I came to the conclusion that British, American, French, German, even Swedish and Norwegian companies operating in governance regimes outside of their normal home are positioned to to pursue activities they do not wish to pursue. Why? Because Certain countries have very high levels of inequality, they have corrupt government, and they have weak institutions. So bribery is almost a way of life. And your problem is, if you wish to trade in that country, what do you do? The people most exposed are in fact the general managers. They're not the top team members, the CEO or the board members. They're the ones who are the country head or the regional head. They're the ones who are tasked with sales, And they're the ones who are judged by the level of sales they achieve. Go to the economist uh, corruption scales and take any number of countries, take the top 10 countries, and then go and find 10 companies in each country. And if you could only get their sales figures, you'd probably find that sales in those companies go up and up and up. And yet if you read read what the company says about itself, it's a moral and and non-corrupt place. How? So I found that in order to make a competitive, uh, realize a competitive edge, you have to bribe. And it's so commonplace that bribery is now basically a form of marketing. So over 80% of companies bribe as a matter of course. The people in the country, the locals, hate bribery. Ironically, they wish to see a much better example given by Western companies. The executives who are in charge of that area equally hate bribery. They don't want to do it, but they have to achieve their sales targets. So what do you do? Well, one thing you can do is resign. But at the age of 47, 52, where is going to be the next job? How are your kids going to be educated? Where is the free health and supporting health services? So bribery becomes a way of doing things. And the reason is you cannot pursue (coughs) the government's requirements from the West 
in a country which pays no respect to those governance requirements. The few companies that don't bribe actually refuse to do business in those countries. And they have gone out of their way and made it a mission and a purpose that that one mission, that one reason for their existence <coughs> is more important than profit. Those mission-based organizations, um, Caterpillar being one, have a mission of quality. And that means quality of product and service, but quality of relationships, quality of contracts, quality of conduct. The John Lewis service, it means service all the way through. And you'll find that John Lewis has made an active decision not to go and trade in various countries, but only where they can feel they can uh, provide service. Companies that are more vision-based, and usually vision here means it's the vision of one or two people, the CEO or the top team, they have a far more shorter time frame. And those companies uh, are exposed to not meeting their targets and exposed to market pressure and, if you like, shareholder frustration. So really we have an odd circumstance where good people are positioned to do bad things that nobody wants and yet the vast majority feel they have no choice. And I emerged as being <coughs> sympathetic to those individuals. My ultimate conclusion is yes, they have no choice. Imagine if 80% of companies in Britain refused to trade in Eastern Europe, in Africa and South America. What would our GDP look like? So we have here, if you like, a systems problem. It's not a problem of the enterprise or a problem of the people. It's something we should be discussing on a much broader international level. Why don't we want to discuss that? Because I can assure you, having worked with government, government is equally as corrupt. Can you imagine how, what it takes to really get some arms deals? Can you imagine what it takes to really win some contracts over food production and agriculture? So government enters into this. So if you are in a receiving country and you see the British government operating the way it does, why should you be sympathetic to a British company? You can't be. So until we deal with our uh, concerns over inequality, weak institutions and weak government, these moral dilemmas will just continue. And in fact, the denial of what's happening will continue as well. So it's not that individual executives are morally corrupt, it is that the system generally leads to uh, dilemmas which can't be easily resolved. Absolutely, absolutely. If you really wanted to take executives to court for bribery and corruption, any government agency could find the data. Why doesn't that happen? Because government doesn't want to. And the reason they don't want to is you would have most of your executives who are operating abroad in prison. And we can't have that. So it is a systems issue, and it's a systems issue government does not wish to confront. One of the cues, EQ, is one of those things that's covered extensively and is very popular. And you, in everything suggests that it's very important for senior executives. But in, in, in the book, it seems to be one of the least important elements. Is that because it's, it's kind of necessary, but it's kind of taken for granted? Uh, no, the original, my understanding of the original research into EQ is that uh, that study was conducted 
uh, with individuals by individuals. So the context in which that's those investigations were pursued were, were the individual's context. It could be at home, it could be in their job, it could be in their social life. What was not really studied were the dilemmas those individuals faced. The vast majority of people at work are in middle or lower middle management roles. And in many ways, EQ works there because other people have made, top managers have made the decision where we're going to go, how we're going to be structured, how many people are in your team, which direction is your team going to take. Your job is to make it happen. So in that sense, the only real blockage to making things work is either you're not skilled enough for the job, or your personality, your orientation, your whole mindset is getting in the way of building trust, building commitment and motivating other people to work with you. So at this individual level, I totally understand why EQ is so important, because it actually refers to the majority of people at work and at home. It's when you leave middle management, it's when you become a senior manager, where the complexity that confronts you is, which way should we uh, take? Which direction should we pursue? And here we come up with the issues mentioned before of competitive advantage and organisation structuring. There is no real right or wrong answer to competitive advantage. It's the competitive advantage that you can create and pursue that makes the difference. So sometimes, in a highly motivated team, where trust has been built up for a long time, you can pursue a poor notion of competitive advantage and a poor notion of strategy, but what you have is such trust in each other, so that when it becomes evident you should change direction, you change direction and it's clear which way you're going to go. So the better engaged teams are the ones who succeed, not the teams that have created the perfect strategy. And the question that we faced is, how do we create a better engaged team at the top, not at the middle? And the answer is by being totally open, by gathering evidence, by making sure the evidence is clean and clear and shared with everyone so that everyone knows what are the pitfalls in the organisation, who's not pulled their weight, why are certain issues not being addressed, why are those issues sensitive? And if we could only open things up, and make those issues a topic of conversation. In, in effect, you need a very resilient top executive to do that. But if we do that, EQ has a chance. At lower levels, we don't face such problems. So what seems to have happened is that EQ became, if you like, the individual's pathway to dealing through complexity, or the middle or low middle manager's pathway to complexity, and but it was not tested at top management levels. And when it was tested at top management levels, it didn't quite work. What did work, your EQ skills. But at top management, there's an agenda. And it's the agenda that you think is the best way forward for the organization and for yourself. There is no reason why I should agree with you. And that is why PQ emerged. Political, the political quotient. The political quotient, absolutely right. Andrew Kakabadzi, thank you very much. The Five Qs by Andrew and Ali Jawad is now available from Thinkers 50. Thank you very much. Thank you. This is a Thinkers 50 podcast, brought to you in partnership with the Brightline Initiative, bridging the gap between strategy design and delivery.